looking up an article on how to do abstract art kind of defeats the purpose of abstract art because isn't abstract art something that you're just supposed to vomit on it on the canvas and <laughs> see what happens is that is that how it works I think it depends on how good your vomit is. <laughs> I wrote an article. Okay. It's about why Christians should read secular philosophy and how they should read it. Have you been published on any websites other than ours? No. I just sent it, and they said that you'll... I sent it, like, yesterday, and they said... You'll get a response within 48 hours. So what what did you say in the article? I, I, I mentioned why it was bad preventing young Christians from being exposed to the ideology of the world. And then I mentioned about how you should read secular philosophy, not in a way as thinking like, oh, I'm just going to read this to basically one of them and know what I'm going to talk about like, and beat them. Right. It was... I had to think about it for a while. And then I also talked about how using secular philosophy and... Oh, shoot. There was something else I could have mentioned that I just didn't even... Because it was pretty long. It, I had to keep it within a thousand words, though. But if I had more room, I would have talked about how Paul had talked about... Oh, hey, when I was in Athens, there was even an idol to an unknown god and then he uses that and a lot of other things uses their philosophy to show them the way right he does but he also says in colossians 2 8 he says to the colossians Uh, that's what that is the very first thing that i bring up see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the element elemental spirits of the world and not according to christ what do you make of that yeah, that's the exact... that John, that is the very first thing I mentioned in my article. No way. Yeah, so I, I, I know because people... I've heard that before. So, and the thing is, people usually take that to mean, okay, don't expose yourself to other philosophy. And I say, no, 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 no. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive. And I think you're even more susceptible if you don't know what's coming. And then I talk about how you have to be prepared to face adversity and how God would use like God would send war against the Israelites like so that the generation that hadn't ever been in war would know how to fight and they could pass that down okay and also I say how you know uh, just as just as a sword is sharpened in a furnace and our faith is sharpened through trials so too is our intellectual immunity to deceptive philosophy sharpened through exposure to the harshest and seemingly most devastating arguments against our faith. Okay. Because it's it's kind of like that. You know, it's an immune system, but it's an intellectual immune system. Right, so... You have to be able to expose to as many arguments, but you can't let them take you captive. Okay, so... Have you, do you know what immunotherapy is? Uh, no. Okay, so immunotherapy is actually a technique that some... I don't, I don't know the word for this kind of doctor. An allergician? Allergician? Uh, a doctor who specializes... Allergician. What is it? Allergician. Is that what it's called? No, I have no idea. I'm just <laughs> making that up. 
I don't think that's actually what it's called, but it's a doctor who specializes specializes in allergies. And when I was growing up, I had really bad seasonal allergies. So toward the end of my high school years, I began to do immunotherapy. And what immunotherapy is, is they inject you with certain pollens or particles that you're actually allergic to. And the more time you spend with these pollens and allergens, I I think is the term, the more you get used to these and the less you actually react to them when you face them in, in nature, per se. And do you think that's kind of what it is, is the more you're exposed to these philosophies and the more you are exposed to things and things of this world and things that have this world's nature and do you think you become more and more immune to them not necessarily that's the tricky part what do you mean not necessarily well it's like you remember in the princess bride when they were having that little you know him and vizini the main character and vizini were facing off with which cup is the poison in and the poison was actually in both cups. Right. And he had just grown up in immunity to it. Right. Okay. Well, one of them was immune and one of them died. And both of them had the same exposure at the same time. Sometimes, I bet if you're not prepared and you just jump in, you can be taken captive. So when we say immune, then we're talking about the ability to resist. The ability to not be taken captive. Well, if we're talking about intellectual immunity, I think it's having an answer and having actually thought about the actual argument against your faith and not just some caricatured argument. And so you don't want to argue against the person that's making the argument. You want to argue against the argument itself. Right. Because a lot of times, the people who are the best fiercest advocates for Christianity were once atheists. Right. C.S. Lewis, Lee Strobel, Ravi Zacharias. There's like a lot. G.K. Chesterton, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, like there's a lot of them that were once atheists. And the reason why they are able to defend the faith so well is because, well, they had once had arguments against it and then had been shown the answer well so essentially they or at least an answer they've been on both sides of the fence and they know which side is better it sounds like yeah is that and is that a requirement reason, to believe something though do you have to be on both sides of the fence no but i think you have to see the other side but how do you see the other side if you're stuck on your own side that's why you read the other side that's why this whole article that i wrote was about why and how christians should read secular philosophy so then I give the example of Raghavi Zacharias and how he always talks about Nietzsche, right? Right. And because he's read Nietzsche's work and he understands that whenever, he, whenever Nietzsche said, God is dead, he wasn't making a triumphant proclamation, but rather he was laying out an argument that in a society without God, our moral foundation crumbles into nihilism that threatens destruction. And like, but Nietzsche believed that humans could create their own meaning and become, you know, the ubermensch. Right. And with the benefit of hindsight, we can look back and say, okay, that is wrong. Humans cannot create their own meaning because when that happens, oh, you know who 
was heavily influenced by the Ubermensch philosophy. Adolf and many Hitler. say they will misinterpret it. It was Hitler. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so we can say with the benefit of hindsight, looking back at the 20th century, that no, that, that meaning doesn't work. And even atheists understand this. They understand, okay, well, we need to root our morality in something firm. So what are they rooted in? And, well, do you know who Sam Harris is? Yeah, I do. Yeah, he's trying to root it in scientific facts. Scientific facts? And a lot of people are like, no, you can't do that. And he tries to do it, and I and a lot of other people are not convinced that he can turn an is into an ought. It's very, it's a very weak argument, in my opinion. Or at least it's one that, like, I don't buy. And I think it's still important to understand the other side. So do you know who Matt Whitman is? No, I don't. Okay, he's a pastor in Lander, Wyoming. Okay. Uh, and he's on a podcast that I listen to called No Dumb Questions, where, well, they don't actually answer questions. They just kind of talk. He is a very interesting view. I think you should watch his YouTube videos called 10 Minute Bible Hour. You should just watch some of those videos and let me know what you think. He doesn't ever give his opinion, or at least very infrequently does. Mostly he just gives the sides of each argument and context and historical fact. And I think a very nuanced interpretation of the Bible and the world is necessary in a time where people are very polarized. Uh, okay. It's either yes or no. I think it needs to be more nuanced than that. It's okay. like we had the old onst. We need a new onst. Nice. That was bad. <laughs> okay, Will, so you um, you mentioned that Sam Har- you're skeptical as to whether Sam Harris can turn an is into an ought. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, he's trying to take the objective reality of how the world is, and from that... Well, Will, when you say objective reality of how the world is, that's, that's quite the string of elaborate terms. In practical terms, and in understandable terms, what do you mean by the objective world of how the world is? Objective reality of how the world is? Well, from what we gather by empirical scientific data so we say okay the earth revolves around the sun okay and we're in the milky way okay he tries to take the scientific method and apply it to morality so he's trying to take the scientific method and apply it to morality yeah you'll have to listen to some of the stuff he talks about Um, i haven't read his book but in his book that's what he tries to do right he's Um, the author of a book called The End of Faith, as well as the author of a book called Letter to a Christian Nation. Yes, but I don't know. I th- he may have come up with a, a more recent book. Okay. And I think that is the book where he tries to do it. So he, tr- he tries to take data, okay, from the world around him, and he takes this data using the scientific method, and he tries to induce an ought out of this data. And when I say ought, I mean... He tries to tell people how you should behave morally using scientific data around the world around us. Is that what you mean, Will? 
Yeah, so the book is called The Moral Landscape, How Science Can Determine Human Values. Okay. And he recognizes that morality needs to be rooted in something, but he believes that, this is from the article, it says, he believes that once scientists begin proposing moral norms and papers, supernatural moral systems will join astrology, witchcraft, and Greek mythology. So he's saying, okay, whenever we can actually have moral norms in science we won't need religion anymore and i need to read his book to understand his argument completely right but not many people are convinced so science as i understand it is an area of study that essentially describes what is and i think we've hit on this a little bit earlier in what we were talking about science only describes what is how can you move from a practice that describes what is, such as science, to a practice that describes what should be or what ought to can be, I tell you, such as ethics. Can I tell you what he thinks? Yes, please please do. He takes the term, science can determine human values, and instead translate it to, science can tell us which values lead to human flourishing. Which Science can tell us how which values lead to human flourishing because... Well, we have history, and we can study that. But you can't translate science can determine human values to science can tell us which lead to human flourishing. Because without religion, who says that we should value human flourishing? Can, can science not tell us that we should value human flourishing? No, I don't believe it can. Why not? He thinks it does. Why not? Because science doesn't tell us what we should. It just tells us what is. Like, I, I cannot intellectually make the jump. And maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is possible. But I just can't fathom. So here's... It's really, actually, it's, it's really interesting that you mentioned this because, as you know, I'm reading The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis in my C.S. Lewis class that I'm taking here at the Air Force Academy, which is a really cool opportunity, and the class is super interesting. Uh, the class is titled The Philosophy of C.S. Lewis. And what we're doing is studying some arguments that C.S. Lewis is making. The first one he makes is in The Abolition of Man, and it's an argument against subjectivism. And in The Abolition of Man, he talks about what we're talking about right now, which is the transformation of an is into an ought, kind of how we're trying to determine whether science as a field of practice that tells us how things are around us and tells us what the nature of things are around us. How can this be turned into a a field like ethics, which describes what ought to be? And what Lewis writes is, and I'm quoting right now, it is impossible to get a conclusion in the imperative mood out of premises in the indicative mood. And Let me just repeat that. It is impossible to get a conclusion in the imperative mood out of premises in the indicative mood. And if you don't know much about grammar, let me try to clarify real quick. The imperative is uh, a mode of grammar, a mode of speaking also, that takes the form of commands. So the imperative in this sense could be you ought not to kill or do not kill. It is. takes the form of a command um, 
and that's what this mood is. The indicative, however, is falls in line with science, and science describes what is. The indicative also describes what is. So, the, an example of the indicative would be the chair I'm sitting on is blue. The walls in this classroom are tan or yellow. It, it can only describe what is. And so what we have here are two different states at which words are being presented. And to get from the imperative, the command form, to the indicative, the descriptive form, we essentially have to somehow get from one state of grammar to the other state of grammar. But the problem is there's a gulf between the two. And this gulf cannot be passed. It's impossible to pass this gulf because passing this gulf would mean in some sense defying the laws of logic, which in another sense are what hold this world together. So if you want to get from the imperative to the indicative, you have to have something transcendent that tell you that tells you how things ought to be in the first place. And for this reason, I, I don't believe that you can get from the command form or, or from the descriptive form, such as science, to the command form, which is what ethics tells us. What yeah, do you think? I agree, but I would also like to point out that I haven't read all of these philosophers who try to bridge that gap. What I'm saying is I think it's important to read them and to crit think critically about their argument so that you can't you aren't taken captive by it and maybe maybe it's a valid argument but that doesn't mean that it's right okay well do you read these philosophers and do you read the secular thinkers with the intent to prove them wrong as you're reading them do you do you read them mm. with the intent to prove that your beliefs are right and their beliefs are wrong. No, I read them with an intent to understand what they're saying. But how can you how can you do that knowing that what makes you who you are, your beliefs and your values are at odds with what they're saying? I don't think those are mutually exclusive. Because you can understand something and not believe it. See, I disagree that with that. That happens all the time. Will, I disagree with that. Um, that that no no okay uh, well okay, can i okay. tell you why, why i disagree with it yeah 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 so i believe that complete understanding of something requires an experience with that thing so in a sense okay. if i'm going to completely understand buddhism i'm going to have to have an experience that's unique to to buddhism and the other thing is that experience i think on some level requires trust or belief in the first place. That is, I, I don't think I can have a, a true Buddhist experience without trusting that there's some truth to Buddhism in the first place. It, does, it doesn't require too much trust, but it requires just a little bit, just a little bit of openness as to this could be true, I think. So in that sense, if you connect the idea is that understanding requires experience and experience requires trust or belief. Therefore, you cannot understand without believing in the first place. Okay, I see your argument, but I don't think it applies to this. And I don't think it applies to logical things because I understand 
that the square root of 49 is 7. But I've never experienced that. What do you mean? You can't experience it. It's an abstract concept. Okay, going back to what you said about I understand how the square root of 49 is 7. Do you understand that? Do I understand that? Yeah, do you actually understand it? Because aren't we just told growing up 1 times 1 is 2, 2 times 2 is 4, 3 times 3 is 9, 4 times 4 is 16, and we go through the, the squares and, and then their square roots, and we're just told this is how things are. Does, does reality itself present a reason to tell us this is how things are, that when you multiply two things together, you get four things? Does reality indicate that to us, or is this just, are these rules of mathematics just things we make up for ourselves? That's a whole nother can of worms. Well, it is a whole nother can of worms, but it's also a... But I will say this. You can derive back the square root of 49 is 7 all the way back to just simple addition and subtraction. Have I experienced addition? I don't know. I don't know if we're taking something as granted to begin with. I don't know if we're taking something as true and then moving from there and working out the logical conclusions of this original premise to begin with or if we're constructing something and saying one plus one is two is the is the idea that one plus one equals two something we deduce from reality or is it something that we make up and then carry out well i think this goes to mathematic terms because In math, you have theorems, which is saying, this is true, and we take these premises, and we logically derive this conclusion, and we accept that to be true. Okay, but what are the fundamental premises that the first theorems are based on? Those are called axioms. So, that's our base understanding. We need axioms. We need axioms to have math that people understand and where do these axioms come from dude i have no idea this episode of the hidden philosophy podcast is brought to you by audible audible is the leading provider of audiobooks and other spoken word material for a limited time sign up for a free trial with audible using the link in the description and get two audiobooks for free that's two rather than the typical offer of one audiobook In case you haven't noticed, we've referenced a lot of different books in this podcast, and Audible lets me listen to books while I'm doing something else like laundry. So give Audible a try, and make sure you use the links in the description. Thanks to Audible for supporting the show. Okay, let me ask you this. We have mathematical axioms. Do we have moral axioms also? Probably. I don't know. I'm not an expert. I don't know if anyone is. I will say that there are certain things that, like I just, I just finished an ethics class and the thing that they would use to judge all of these different ethical principles, you know, Kantianism, utilitarianism, all those, they would judge them off our human understanding of that doesn't seem right. On the basis of feeling, it sounds like we judge on the basis of feeling. I think it's. It's a feeling, but it's not just an, like an emotion, you know? What is it? Then? It's like a... Well, it's our conscious. Conscience. Conscience. Okay. 
and conscience is more than a feeling. I said more than an emotion. More than an emotion. It That's may just be a feeling. Can you For descri- example, okay. I'm not going to say our conscience is part of our intellect because a lot of times those can be at odds. Okay. So in Crime and Punishment, the main character, Roskill in the Kov, or however you say it, he kills someone okay. from like the very beginning of the book. Right. And it like wrecks him. But yeah. he intellectually thinks what he did was right and he was perfectly justified. But he is just overwhelmed with guilt and and he gives himself away and he's sent off to Siberia. And he's still super old, you know, super secluded, isolated. Intellectually he still thinks that he's like you know, super better than everyone else, but he's still like an emotional wreck. Okay. And then he eventually breaks. What is his... But in a good way. What What is this... Can you describe this breaking that he, he endures? He realizes that he was wrong intellectually. He was or wrong maybe... Into- there's, there's different ways to interpret it. But he understands that there's... That there's an objective truth. Or at least that's how I interpret it. Okay. You'd have to read it. I don't have the book with me or else I'd quote the end of it. Well, it's in my room. So maybe there's an objective truth, but the question that strikes me when you say that is that reality is messy. It's not always clear what we ought to do. Mm -hmm. When you don't know what you ought to do, because because you're torn inside between maybe between different values between trusting two different things when you're torn inside and you have this view that reality is messy what do you do then will so you know how i texted you saying hey john you need to watch paul apostle of christ yeah that was like one of the few actually good christian movies it okay. was like like actually like a good movie if you think about it from an artistic standpoint. Okay. Because they did something interesting. You have to watch it to understand. See, the, see, the you just said church. it. You just said you have to experience it. You have to watch it. You have to experience it to understand. You just no, said it. No, 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 no. I could have explained it, but we don't have that much t- time. Okay. But then I guess you would have been experiencing my words. But Okay, keep going. Sorry. That's by the by. In that, the early church is faced with a tough decision. They are being persecuted, you know, burned because Nero set half the half of Rome on fire. Right. And blamed it on the Christians. Okay. And so all the Christians are being hunted down and burned. Um, and they're faced with this big decision. Should we stay in Rome and be a light to Rome figuratively? Right. Or should we flee and preserve Christianity that way and spread the gospel to other places? Right. Or should we fight back into this oppression? Or should we overthrow the government? There's like a bunch of different things. And kind of like the the two people in charge of that church right there are Aquila and Priscilla. And they don't know what to do. They're torn between staying or leaving. And Paul and Luke decide to write the book of Acts. Luke like writes down what 
Paul's telling him in the prison to help give them guidance as to what Paul has experienced. And I think something that was very important from the movie was they had a guiding principle. What was that guiding principle? They knew they knew that taking up arms was wrong. Okay. They didn't know why. They just knew it was wrong. Yes. Okay. And it's they must show love. Okay. And because that's what what Jesus did. He showed love. And love is a very complex thing. But I think it's our it's one of the guiding principles, you know, God is love. Uh, okay, okay. But will why did they make the decision that they made? I guess God must have revealed it to them. Did he reveal how they should make this decision too? Did he reveal exactly what they should do? Kind of like he showed Noah or Moses the exact way to build the ark or the exact way to build the tabernacle, the exact things you have to do. Did he reveal that to Paul and Luke? No, not in the movie at least. There was never any, oh wow, look at this miraculous thing that just happened. It was the faith the trust and the love ex- displayed by the early apostles in the early church was what you saw as miraculous. And I think that was a good part of the movie. It's, it's like when you, have, when you are faced with a tough decision, you can remember your mi- in your mind that Jesus says at the end of Mark and Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You can remember that, right? Mm-hmm. So what does that look like? Does that mean he's going to make our decisions for us? Does that mean he's going to make a way for us to make tough decisions? What does it look like? I'll give you my thought, and then you can tell me what you think. Okay. But I was actually thinking about this yesterday, and I think we just have to act in accordance with what we know axiomatically and through the Bible to be true. Okay. And we just have to have faith that that was in God's plan. God has a plan for us. Right. But a lot of times he doesn't reveal it. Okay. And do we need it to be revealed? Like, honestly, if it will happen, shouldn't we just act in accordance with his word and in faith and his will be done? Or do we need to know? I don't think we do. I think we want to. And it's a blessing whenever God does reveal it to us. But I don't think it's as, it's as plainly obvious as a lot of people say it will be. Sometimes okay, right. I think it is. Sometimes it is. And that is, well, that's a blessing, getting to know so overtly. Like with Gideon. Like he's like, God, is this you? 
and show me a sign. And God like shows him a sign. Right. Or whenever God speaks to people, he physically speaks to them. But I think God can speak to us without speaking physical words. I think it's through our conscious, going back to what we were talking about, and through his word, and through meditating on his word. Hmm. Can your conscience ever be wrong, Will? What do you mean by wrong? Like, you mean do, like, morally the wrong thing? I don't know. Your conscience convicts you by making you feel guilty, right? Yeah, but your conscience isn't the only thing that can make you feel guilty. I think sometimes guilt... Sometimes guilt comes from the enemy. Sometimes guilt comes from Satan because it's... He is making you feel guilty for something that Christ has forgiven you of or for something that you may be causally responsible, but there's nothing you could have done. And I think God, through Jesus, gives us the example of we need to forgive and forget, but... So how do you not tell the in a naive way? How do you tell the difference between these two sources of guilt? That one comes from the enemy and one from one comes from God speaking through your conscience. How do you say which one is right and which one is wrong if they both strike you very similarly because they're both feelings of guilt? They're both feelings of supposed conviction, right? Well, one of them's conviction, one of them's guilt. Those are two different things. Okay, what's the difference? I think conviction comes from God. Guilt doesn't necessarily. Guilty feelings doesn't necessarily. Don't necessarily. Yeah. Why? Okay, what do you so think? Describe conviction. You tell me what conviction means. I, you keep asking me the questions. I ask you the questions now. Describe conviction, John. I don't know. Take a guess. You know, I've just always felt that feeling guilty and feeling convicted were two were the same thing. So, well, I actually looked up the difference between guilt and conviction from a website titled difference between.net. It's actually really interesting. And this website specializes in explaining the differences between similar terms and objects. And what it says is that both guilt and conviction are related to error or sin. And most people do not know if they're feeling guilt or or having conviction of some activity. There's it can be quite confusing. But, but what it also says is, I'm going to quote the summary here at the bottom of the, of the webpage. Guilt can be defined as a feeling of having committed some crime or offense. Conviction can be defined as being convinced of a wrong or a sin. In guilt, one does not feel a ray of redemption, but only feels condemnation. Conviction is the revelation of a sin or wrong done. Conviction can also be called confutation. Guilt may lead to more guilt because of the suppression of the feelings. On the contrary, conviction leads to repentance, which can can change one's life. Guilt makes a person feel ashamed or stupid of the act and makes him feel that he can never recover from such an evil act and could deliver no good to others again. On the other hand, conviction is a revelation by which a person can regain his good self. And what I want to focus on here in this explanation is that 
guilt may lead to more guilt because of the suppression of the feelings. But conviction leads to repentance, which which can change uh. one's life. Will, what is repentance? Well, it's penting again. Okay. It's, uh, it's turning around like what you're looking at. You know, you know, they, they always talk about like pastors love to say repent is a military term. It means looking forward and then they say, oh, repent. And you'll do a 180 and look the other way, face the other way. Okay. Let's say repentance is taking your eyes off what is evil and turning towards good. You'll start going in that direction. Okay, well, let me ask you this question. In Raskolnikov's case, in Fedor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, what did repentance look like? Well, repentance looked like for him when he was in Siberia. He had been there for a year or so. And this one girl that like loved him, she followed him there. Okay. And she had persisted to show him love, even though, gosh, you don't like that guy, man. He's a jerk. Okay. And but she still showed him love. And then one day, basically she was really sick. And so she wasn't able to come up and like see him. And so he was starting getting worried. He was like, oh shoot, where is she? And then he had known that she loved him. But at that moment, he realized that he loved her. So it was her love and the love he had for her and what was most interesting was he realized that God loved him which a lot of people will will be like ah well not necessarily but I mean he brings out a bible and starts reading it for real and starts breaking down crying okay so I think it was love that turned his guilt into a conviction into repentance so how do we get ourselves to repent? How do we get ourselves to repent? Yeah. How do we turn 180 degrees? What does that look like for us practically? Is it is it even in our power to do that? Is there anything we do to repent? Is there any act that it, that that is required of us to repent? Or is it a change of heart that that either one we produce in ourselves or two is produced within us? I don't know. But I'll read this and maybe you can tell me what you make of it. Okay. So it's first John four, seven through ten. Or seven through twelve. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And I know you can barely even say the word love now because it's so washed out, but there's something to it. It seems cliche, but I think it was cliche because it was so important that it got overused. Speaking of the word. Well, so we talked about the book You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith, right? Yeah. We've talked about that on this podcast. And if I remember the book correctly, he talks about how we always love something, kind of like we always do something. As humans, we are always doing something. And if we think we're doing nothing, then we're still doing something. If love is continual like this, it seems like the, the problem lies in what we love. And he would also say this because the title of his book is called You Are What You Love. The problem doesn't lie in getting ourselves to love from nothing. The problem lies in turning our loves from one point to another. And that, that goes along really well with the idea of repentance. Turning from one direction and going 180 degrees to the other direction is very similar to replacing your love from one direction to 180 degrees in the other direction. You have to look towards something else. Yeah. And here's my question for you, and it's another question about practicality and what this actually looks like in application. How do we turn our loves how do we put you know as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount lay up treasures for yourself in heaven for where your heart is or where what does he say where your treasure is there your heart will be also right where your treasure is there your heart will be also how do we do that how do we lay up treasures where they ought to be I think the way to do that is to not have treasure on earth. And what do you mean by that? Well, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Right. Okay. Well, first question is, wait, is he serious? Well, Will, do you know... Wait, wait, wait. I'm going to say something... Some people have tried to say, oh, well, the thing is, the eye of a needle is actually the name of a gate that enters to enter into some part of Jerusalem. Right. And you can't really fit a camel there, but you can kind of squeeze it through and eventually get it through. No, that's not true. That was just, a, that was just something someone made up. That's not a, a, the case. That's not the case. No, that's not. There was no gate named that, or at okay. least that we have any sort of recollection of. Because the disciples asked the very next question, who then can be saved? Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And you also think, well, what is a rich man? How much money do you have to be to be rich? Rich is richer than me, as you know, the classic saying goes. It's almost impossible to not have any sort of wealth here 
because, well, if you're going to live, you got to have food, a place to stay. So I think Jesus was saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But I think it also works conversely. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be. It's where we put our eyes. You know, Peter was going out onto the water, walking over towards Jesus, and he took his eyes off Jesus, and then he started sinking. It's about where we fix our eyes. It's not a... Well, it is, in one sense, a complete turnaround, fixing our eyes on Jesus for the first time. But I think it's also a, a continual... Oh, we gotta oh make sure I'm looking at Jesus. And it gets exhausting. But the author of You Are What You Love, James K.A. Smith, right. says that how you fix what you love is through liturgy, which is kind of a what? So like continual habit of doing something. Okay. But I think that's incomplete. I think it also has to do with the spiritual disciplines. Fixing your eyes on Jesus through all of those but i think it's i think there's so much more to it than we realize and i don't think we'll come to an answer because we're still on this side of glory we don't know everything and we i don't know if we will all right well so what do you do when you fail you're gonna have to elaborate what do you do When you just fail, right? And where you failed so many times that that it's just shameful to ask for forgiveness again. That it it's just like saying I'm sorry one more time for the same thing wouldn't really change much, you feel like. What do you do when you fail like that? Does God forgive us then? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's go back to whenever I was talking about Peter on the water. Whenever he started looking at the the wind and the waves, he started sinking. He was afraid and began to sink. He said, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. He said, you have little faith. Why would you doubt? And they got into the boat. But Jesus still reached out and saved him. But well, so Jesus rebuked it, him, right? It, he was upset with him. Peter disappointed him. John, that rebuking was out of love. The worst thing, like, I don't have children, but from what people have said about raising children and kind of from what I, I, I've observed like, the worst thing you can do is never rebuke a child. You know, spare the rod, spoil the child. You, if you never rebuke them, they'll never learn. And isn't that what you want? Don't you want them to learn? Don't you want them to be able to function properly? Of course, because you love them. You want yeah. the best for them. Yeah. And so, of course, you'll rebuke them. But you'll still reach out and grab their hand. That's what Jesus was like. You know, God is our Father. Yes, He will rebuke us out of love. 
but he still loves us. Yeah. I think that that's a good place to stop, unless you have something else to say. Yeah, I just wanna I just wanna close with this. The question, what do you do when you fail? I struggle with that. I really do. Because um, maybe it hurts my pride that I just fail all the time. Or, gosh, I just feel guilty all the time. But I'm encouraged by something I read in Psalm 103, verses 11 through 14. David says, For as high as the heavens are above the, are above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him, him being God. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Yeah, I just... It takes a while for those words to sink in. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Do you have anything you'd like to close with? No, I, I think I think that sums it up pretty well. I will. All right. Until next time. I'll see you. Bye. Yeah. All right. Bye.